In Session with Dr. Farid Hulakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Words Can Change Your Brain by Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Words can change your brain, Andrew Newberg and Mark Robert Waldman. Look forward to reading that and sharing it with you on next week's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Selfless by Brian Lowry. Selfless, the social creation of you. And, uh, Really, really enjoyed this book. I find this topic very um, fascinating and important to think about, and one that in recent years my thinking has been shaped by some great thinkers on this topic um, and my own thoughts and explorations on it, which have really shifted my perspective on what does it mean to have a self or what, how do we create this sense of self? And in this book, as the subtitle says, The Social Creation of You, Brian Lowry points to this concept that our cells don't get formed in a vacuum. Our sense of self is created socially, which is a fascinating concept in and of itself because when we think of the self, I think that it's me, something internal. But what he uh, suggests and explains throughout the book is that it's actually a social creation that through our relationships with other individuals and with the world, that is how a sense of self or a self is created. And so I really enjoyed that, um, that argument and the way he outlines it throughout the book. Uh, so yeah, the sense of what does it mean to have a self? Um, I've talked recently about this theme of even the way we see ourselves or the, the sense of self might be an exaggeration, which could make evolutionary sense in that it would make us feel that we are even more significant than we actually are. So it's even more important for us to survive and to make sure our offspring survive. Um, in an evolutionary sense, it can make sense to overemphasize the self. But then we can also see how overemphasizing the self hurts us personally by making us focus too much on certain things or be hurt even more by things when they happen to us because of how uh, important or special we think we are. But also, when we look at society, the more people are overly focused on themselves, we see that the breakdowns and people uh, becoming greedy, wanting power, wanting to control, which lead to many of the social ills that we see in the world. Uh, so early in the book, he introduces this concept of the self being socially uh, constructed, socially created. And in this way, I think we can say we co-create our own selves and the selves of others because even culture is created by people, but it's created by people over time. Um, and as he says, all of us, of course, we might think that our story of our life begins, whether when you were born or when you know, at conception, depending on your definition of life and these types of things. 
but really we're born into a story that's already being told or that even before you're born, your parents are thinking about you and might be already having expectations about you or just based on their position in society, there's already things that are going to be impacting who you are, who you could become or how you will interact with the world. And early in the book, he has uh, this passage that I think is really important and that I've uh, experienced often as a therapist where I'm helping people get in touch with them, their selves more. Uh, so there's this paragraph here on page 24, selves are mysterious. We cannot escape ourselves. No matter what you do or where you go, you are with yourself. Given all the time we spend with ourselves, you would think we would understand them better. But if you're anything like me, you often surprise yourself, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. It's tricky to see the self clearly when we expect the self to be an internal, stable essence. And so often I'll ask clients even something basic about how are they feeling or what did they feel about something that happened or how are they feeling in that moment? And often the response is, I don't know. And I might joke with them and say, then who should we ask? But the truth is that they're telling the, the truth. They often don't know, or we all often don't know what we are feeling or we're not in touch with what it is that we feel. So as much as we would think ourselves is something that we, of course, would know clearly because I'm living with myself 24 hours a day, uh, we actually are not necessarily so in touch or so aware or even, uh, as he points out in the book, so aware of why we are the way we are, even if we think we know, um, that actually might be the reality. The way I think of it is that you might live in a home and you think, well, this is my home, so I know it really well, but it doesn't mean you know it deeply. You know, you might not know certain aspects of the what's behind the walls and the plumbing, or you might not realize there's some room or a closet you didn't see or what's in the back of that closet. So even though you live in a certain home, does it mean you know it perfectly well or that there isn't different levels of how well you will know it? And similarly, even though we all are living with ourselves, it doesn't mean we have the same amount of knowledge or that we can't be surprised or not know things about ourselves. But even the way I'm talking about it uh, points to how we sometimes think of the self as this essence, and that was there in that end of that passage I just read, this sense that each person has this unique essence that, again, at the time of conception or the time of birth was bestowed upon them, and it's this part of them that is unique it might partially come from DNA, but people might say it's something like a soul. There's some feeling that we feel that others have and we also feel about ourselves that is very unique and seems to be very internal coming from within. It, it, Brian Lowry in this book is essentially arguing against this essential or essentialist type of sense of self that there isn't necessarily this internally uh, created or coming from some internal source or some supernatural source that makes a sense of self that it is a social type of creation. Uh, what I find interesting about that conversation about that sense of self and if it's some kind of an essence, you know, we might think, well, where does someone's sense of self end or where, where, when are they no longer themselves? You know, sometimes someone becomes depressed and we say, oh, you know, he or she, they are no longer themselves. So we're saying something about them has changed and what I'm seeing now is not quite them. Or we can think of the physical body. There is a sense that we think of our experience of self as 
most people have it behind their eyes, maybe a little bit inside their head. We kind of said that's where our self is. Um, and so because of that, though, then what would make you feel that someone is no longer themselves? For most people, you say, okay, we cut off their leg. Most people would not think, okay, well, now the person's a different person. We would probably understand it has affected their life and impacted them in some way. But we wouldn't say they've lost their sense of self. But if we saw a change in their personality, we might say this is a change of self. Um, you know, or, or people, like I was going back to that example of depression, some people say, well, now that you've cured their depression, they are back to being themselves. But there is a sense that some people, their personality might be a little bit more down or might be a slightly lower mood or they might connect more deeply to these painful things that happen in life. And is that not necessarily still themselves? Many great artists were able to connect to these painful aspects of life. And we wouldn't think that that's not them. We would actually think that's what made them uh, so special is that they were connected to those things. So it would be a part of themselves. So we can see that understanding what it means to have a sense of self, where does someone's sense of self begin and end, is actually a, a quite a complicated and not so black and white type of a concept or conception. Uh, so throughout the book, there are these various examples that he shares of the sense of self being socially created. Uh, and he talks about this sense of freedom and also constraint, which is this interesting dynamic that he introduces that uh, any sense of self or identity that we have, uh, it gives us a, a sense of structure, which can feel good, you know, to know where we belong in the world. But that, of course, takes away some degree of our freedom, because anything I am, when you define me, or if I define myself, it does say that I, I am not certain things. So, for example, if I say I am a man, I am saying I'm not a woman, or um, if we're looking at gender, let's say if I say I'm a man, I'm, uh, I'm saying I'm not a woman, or I'm not um, gender fluid, or any of those other descriptors that might be given to gender. So I'm defining myself, but also limiting myself as well. And so he talks about how there is this balancing act between wanting to have freedom to choose what we do, our actions, beliefs, all of those things that we find to be very valuable. But we also enjoy being part of a structure that actually constrains us, even though we might think of that as a negative, but that feels quite good. We don't want, in that sense, unlimited freedom in this sense, that nothing is determined and everything uh, is up to be chosen in that sense. So that's a, a theme that comes up throughout the book, this balance between constraint and freedom and the sense of self and how it relates to that. And so again, this sense of an essential self or this authentic self, I use that phrase a lot, and many psychologists and people in the field will use that phrase. And in a way, he's saying there isn't this authentic self that exists in and of itself, uh, in the way that we often think of it, that we're just going to turn inward and find this essence. And then once we find that essence, we should express that essence. Um, I sometimes think more of the authentic self, not as this thing. And so I still think now my authentic self is someone who says this, this kind of a thing or dresses this way or, you know, acts in this way. To me, the being more authentic with ourselves and with others is to be more open to seeing what we are experiencing at any given moment and the openness to express what might be going on for us then. So it's not always going to be the same thing or being the same way, but uh, expressing ourselves or experiencing ourselves 
in a more flexible and fluid way. Um, but, you know, that being said, this flexible and fluidity is something that he also shares that when we think of a sense of self, you maybe have seen someone in a certain context, but then now if you see them in a different context, you see a different side of them that will change your conception or understanding of them. And so you can see that the social situation, their relationships, those all will contribute to what type of a self is being expressed by that individual. There are also some interesting studies that he shares throughout the book that relate to this sense of self and how we might think of it as so firm and stable that I know who I am and what I am, but actually it's a, a little bit more fluid than that or not so concrete and black or white. For example, there's something called, I think they call it usually the rubber hand experiment. And it's quite fascinating. If you haven't seen it before, I would encourage you to watch it online. I've never done it. I'd actually like to do it to see what the experience is like. But essentially what they do is that they uh, have you sitting down with your face, uh, your uh, hands on the table, and one of your hands would say your right hand on the table, but your own hand is out of view. There's kind of a barrier blocking your hand. But instead, in, around where your hand could be in front of you, there's a rubber hand. And then what they start to do is they start to stroke your hand and the rubber hand at the same time in the same way. So let's say gently stroking your pinky from the back to the front, and then maybe rubbing against the top of your, your fingers in the same pattern, same speed. So they're doing the same thing. And after just a brief amount of time, because of this experience of seeing the, the physical sensations that you're feeling happening to this rubber hand, we essentially start to feel like that rubber hand is ours. And when they start to touch the rubber hand, you might actually start to feel it in your hand that you actually, your own hand, uh, or what they often do is they'll slam it with a hammer and you'll almost feel this sensation of pain more intensely than just if you saw it happening to a, a rubber hand without this whole process of connecting to it. So what we find is that even though we think our sense of self, the physical self is this more, most clear manifestation of a sense of self, that there's even some degree of malleability there, a little bit of flexibility there. Uh, even in a different way, what you might experience, many people have experienced this, that someone will share a story about something that happened to them and then later realize that it actually didn't happen to them, it happened to their loved one, most often someone that they are very close to. And I'm not talking about instances when someone intentionally you know, says a story happened to them just because they, they think it'll get them attention, but really they've forgotten. And so they have likely heard the story many times or heard it and felt it very deeply or felt so connected to the person who went through it that they actually internalize it or their memory misremembered to think that it was something that happened to them. And so we know that memory, and something he talks on the book, it's an incredible thing, but it's also fallible. It makes mistakes. It gets things wrong. And this is clearly demonstrated by all the different experiments that have uh, introduced fake memories into people's experiences. So they show them a picture of them on a hot air balloon and say, oh, look, your uncle took you on a hot air balloon when you were five years old. And they say, I don't remember that. But then they come back a week later and they have all these details of, of what happened in the hot air balloon and what it was like, or, or different stories like that, that they, um, the experimenters insert these memories essentially into the participant's brain, which shows just how fallible our memory is. And so much of our sense of self can also comes from our memory in this continuous sense 
of our experience, but we see that our memories themselves are fallible, which makes us think, well, then even that sense of self that is based on memory or partially based on memory is going to be fallible itself. So, uh, you know, again, the, a big theme throughout the book is this concept that our sense of self, something that we think feels so real and so stable, is not something that is so stable in that sense, but also is not something that just comes from within this internal essence that we often think. Uh, Brian Lowry is arguing against that, that ourselves are created through our relationships with others. And because of that, that means you are contributing to the sense of selves of other people, both in how you um, interact with society and the world, but also especially how you interact with other individuals. Uh, he shares the research on stereotype threat, which also demonstrates this quite clearly. So uh, they've done research on Asian American women. And so if we look at some stereotypes about Asian American women, if we look at the Asian side, that would show or the stereotype would be that they are good at math. And when it comes to the woman side of their identity, the stereotype is that women are not good at math. I'm not saying these things are true. I'm saying the stereotypes that are out there. And so what they have done is they've done math tests where they would have some of the Asian American women uh, check their, their sex, so they put male or female and mark that they're a woman and have others mark that they're ethnicity, that they're Asian. And what they found was those who marked that they were Asian scored higher than those who marked they were female. So this is over, doesn't mean each individual, but over a set of people. And what they found, or what the people who have researched this phenomenon, which they call stereotypes that have found, is that it seems that because of that part of their identity that's being brought up, that they are primed, they are fitting into that part of the identity more unconsciously. They weren't aware that they were doing this. Uh, because of just the stereotypes that exist out there in the world. So we can see even in something that feels very real and not just about feelings or emotions or thoughts, but mass performance, we're seeing a difference based on what part of someone's identity might be triggered or might be brought to their own attention, even if it's unconscious. So after the break, I'll continue on the book and some thoughts about it. Again, the book is Selfless by Brian Lowry. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book Selfless, The Social Creation of You by Brian Lowry. At the end of the book, he gets into some heavier topics related to things like death uh, and also this desire to live forever and all meaning in life, purpose in life, and, and what are those things have to do in relation to the self. And I agree with him that this sense of self that we have in our, uh, he didn't probably, I don't think he said exactly this way, our attachment to it or how much of a weight or significance we put to it is likely related to our desire to, to live forever or to make sure we leave a legacy that is somehow visible forever or at least extends beyond our physical death whether that's putting our names on the side of a building. You see people donating money so that their names is on the building. They hopefully will, uh, they hope to enjoy it while they're alive, but also know it'll extend beyond their death. Or we contribute some type of works of art, even his book, that would be a way of communicating with other people and leaving a mark after his death. He actually talks about how 
uh, early in the book, he does a thing where he says, wiggle your finger. And, you know, actually I did it. And he's talking about how this is an interesting interaction between him in some present state when he wrote the book and then me or anyone who's reading the book and when they uh, now are affected by his request but doing some behavior at that time. But so we could do lots of things to, to leave a legacy uh, or to feel that ourself extends beyond our physical death. And also our mortality itself, dying is something that he talks about how we can only have known what it's like to live. And of course, when you're alive, you don't know what it's like to live. And then to imagine dying is something we can't really know. And that's why I think we have such a hard time with it. Often, one of the fears people have about death is they'll talk about, oh, what, what if it's just nothingness? And it's, you know, that's it. Like the lights go out. Um, but I think the problem we have is that because we've only experienced living and we can only imagine and anticipate what it's like to be alive and be in our bodies, when we think of nothingness or not feeling anything, we, we sense it like some kind of silent, dark, black abyss, when really it's nothing, there will be nothing to feel, nothing to experience. It's kind of like when you go to sleep or if you've been under anesthesia, you don't feel anything. There's nothing there for you to experience. So I often think that fear that we have is in a way misplaced. Of course, not that I know what's going to happen after we die, but the fear that if it's nothing, that that's going to feel really bad. There's no you left to feel, no physical sensation to, to feel anything. Uh, coming back to the sense of self and wanting it to continue, uh, of course, through our children also, that's another way that we might feel that that might happen. But there is a strong desire to leave our mark, even to leave our name. And I can get that when we look at the sense of self and we think of ourselves as continuing, or we look at the selves that people still talk about. We might say, William Shakespeare or Aristotle or some of these great thinkers from the past or people who are very well known. And I think because of that, we mistakenly think, okay, that's what I should be striving towards is that my name, my picture, my image somehow is to persevere and survive after my death. To me, that is not the right thing that we should strive for because we are not there to hear people praising our name um, decades or hundreds of years or thousands of years after our death. Again, I think we mistake what we experience now and think, oh, it would be nice if I was Shakespeare and everyone was still talking about me as this great writer or Aristotle and people saying how wise I was. Uh, that would feel good to hear it now for people to tell me I'm a good writer or that I'm wise now. But after your death, you won't be there to to feel it or experience it. Or if you believe in some afterlife, what most people believe of an afterlife, you won't be concerned about things like that. Am I getting attention? Are people liking me? Are they praising me? You likely won't think about those things if you consider it some kind of a spiritual afterlife. So I always think that rather than focusing on those types of tangible things that somehow will persist after your death, we would be better off focusing on the legacy of our impact and yes, there could be an overlap. If you make a positive impact, people might remember you and talk about you. I don't think that's problematic. But to make the intention and our focus on leaving positive impact, and that's in everything that we do, from great big things that hopefully you'll contribute to, uh, also in smaller ways, how you interact with one another, how you especially treat people that are close to you, um, 
let's say your partner, but also your children. That's a important way, not just having children and okay, my, my DNA continues in some way, but more importantly, the way you treat them and how then they will be members of the world, citizens of the world, and then now, what will they do? That impact does continue. You can trace the, the contributions generations back to our ancestors and how they treated their children, which impacted how they treated their children all the way down to us, and we can continue in that, and also how those individuals interacted with the world and hopefully made the world a better place based on or influenced by the ways that they were treated. So um, I think that's more important than to focus on um, will my name be remembered? Will my name be on some building? That to me is unfortunately a byproduct of how we can only imagine what something is like using our living state, but we can't imagine what it's like. But if we think it's the right thing to do, I think we should just do the right thing, care about one another, try to make the world a better place, and leave that type of an impact and legacy. So a legacy of impact rather than a legacy of name. Um, but he does also talk about meaning and how we want to have a sense of meaning in our lives and how important that is to try to, to create that for ourselves. Now, coming back to this theme of um, uh, living forever, he also talks about how because of that, there are different uh, technologies or groups out there that are trying to figure out ways to do that. Uh, first, there are people who can, uh, who offer to freeze your body and so as soon as you die, you freeze your body with the hopes that at some point in the future, scientists will have come up with ways to bring you back to life and to have cured whatever it was that killed you and the aging and all that, to then allow you to now live in the future at some time so that you, you won't die. Uh, also, there's a, a group, I think something called like Project 2045, who it doesn't have to be about preserving your physical body, but that they will help upload your consciousness onto a non-biological entity. So basically like a computer or some kind of a um, computer-type system that will then have your consciousness. And I've heard this concept a lot, and different people talk about this theme, even I've seen TV shows based on this idea of uploading your consciousness and then you get to live forever in that way. Um, I think it's misguided in a few important ways. Uh, the first one, even this idea of uploading your consciousness, and uh, currently we would not be able to even understand how the brain fully works to do that or to likely have the computing power or the storage power to, to do that. But even let's say when science advances to that point where we can upload your brain into a computer and all the connections within the brain, I think at times it's, um, of course, the brain is so significant, I think, to our experience of, of who we are and our overall experience. But I wonder what would happen if we just had a brain without the rest of the body? Um, isn't the body part of our experience? Or even the brain, yes, we think of that as the, the main part of our nervous system, but there's also the stomach nervous system, which in recent years has gotten much more attention um, and research done on what is often called the enteric nervous system, sometimes called even the second brain, and how that has an impact on what we feel. Even when we talk about having a gut feeling, it could be coming from there that helps guide us towards and away from things. And so sometimes the, 
the obsession with just the brain, of course, I think the brain is incredible, and I think so much a part of what makes us who we are. But I think that we might miss something if we just upload the brain. Right? We won't know, and it's hard to really understand what that will be like until we do it. And even when we do it, it'll be hard because there will be this entity experiencing something. We might be able to interact with it, but we won't really know what it's like to be that thing. Which brings me to my second and really fundamental issue with this idea of living forever by uploading your consciousness. I think what will happen is if we're able to do it, let's say, as I was saying, the limits that might be there technologically and even conceptually of, of uploading your brain, would that really be that full uploading of your consciousness and experience? But even if we are um, able to do that, so let's say we could do that, what I think to me doesn't make sense is that if you upload my full conscious experience onto some computer, if you do it while I'm alive, or even just after I'm alive, but it could be illustrated better when I'm alive, would you think that I could feel both my own experience and the experience of the computer? I wouldn't think so. Just like if I thought you were able to upload it onto a thousand computers, I wouldn't simultaneously feel all thousands of those. I actually think it's our obsession with the self as this essence that we think that if we uploaded my consciousness as uh, my experience into a computer, I would still experience that is because of this obsession with the self and how we think it's so unique and so this thing that is um, essential to me that I would then feel those things. But I feel what I'm experiencing in my physical body, but if you clone me or to upload me, I would no longer feel those things. I would not feel that. So that could continue forever, this uploading of my consciousness, brain, whatever technology was able to do. And what's interesting is I would not experience that self, but you could experience what it would still be like to communicate with me by interacting with that self or about that uploaded consciousness. So it's kind of funny. I wouldn't get to live forever, but that version of me would live forever without me experiencing it. So if the goal is for you to experience yourself life forever, I don't think you would be able to capture that at all or experience that at all by uploading your consciousness. You would not feel any of those things. Another uh, interesting thing here is, let's say even if you were able to upload my consciousness right now at this very moment, everything about my experience, let's say even including the enteric nervous system and, and all of that, um, at that exact moment, so let's say you upload it, Going forward, at that exact moment, me and that uploaded version of me would differ because we know that our our brain or our, that experience um, is plastic. It changes. So based on the interactions that that computer me would have with the world and the ones I would have and how they would differ, we would know that we would slowly start to differ from one another. Now, that could be interesting to think about and to see what, what happens and how those differences arise. But it's also... Uh, points back, I think, to this essentialist nature of the self that we think, okay, if you upload me, that's me forever, just like I am here. But no, me, who I am right now, is a ongoing, changing type of thing. It's plastic. It's not set in stone. Even as Brian Lowry talks in his book, the sense of self is much more fluid even in day-to-day, -day, uh, being created and co-created with the world around us, the relationships that we have. But so myself being uploaded, it wouldn't be this essentialist Type, this essence, the essence of me that would be uploaded. It would be some kind of a um, 
neural network type of experience that would be uploaded. But I think, again, it points to, one, even desiring this, our over-emphasis um, on the sense of self and the attachment to the self, some people might call it ego, that we have, uh, but also our misunderstanding of what that would be like if it, it went forward. So um, this book, Brian Lowry's book, Selfless, definitely was uh, very insightful. And actually, after the break, I'll talk about some things he brings up about identity. And he introduced a concept related to identity or a way of thinking about it that I hadn't thought about before, about why we can be so um, keenly aware and even sensitive to how other people identify, which has come up a lot in discussions of um, things like being trans and, and related types of issues. So after a break, I'll share some more thoughts on the book Selfless by Brian Lowry. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Just giving some last thoughts on the book Selfless, The Social Creation View by Brian Lowry. As I mentioned before the break, he talked about identity and brought some ways of thinking about identity that I had never considered before that I, I found quite fascinating. So I'll share some of what he brings up and then some of those concepts and ideas that um, I thought were interesting related to that. So he shares the story of, many of you might be familiar with Rachel Dolezal, who in 2015, um, she was the, for some time, the um, president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. And so she resigned in 2015 because it was found that both of her parents were white and that she was, in essence, living as a black woman for many years to the point that people thought she was black, born of black parents. And so when this was found out, she, she had to resign or she chose to resign. And she says that for many years she lived as a black woman. So, so even though she was not born into a black family or had black parents, it is a sense of identity. And so we've heard a, a different type of, but similar when it comes to gender. We talk about gender identity. But many people were outraged by what they saw as Rachel Dolezal trying to take advantage of um, a, a certain group of people, black Americans, trying to uh, identify as black and to have a certain experience. But she chose to be black while many others can't choose to be white if they're born black. And so they brought up a lot of issues of what does it mean to have a certain identity, um, but for some time, she lived as a black woman, and as Brian Lowry discussed in the book, she was essentially born a white woman, but then chose to be a black woman and was living that way until it was found that she was not from black parents, and then the community decided that she was no longer a black woman, and so she was outside of that community. So we can see, and this is his way of introducing, that even identity, as much as we think of it as a purely internal type of experience or internal choice or internal feeling is impacted and in some ways even determined externally as well, that there is, again, an interplay, just like this whole understanding of this concept of self, that even with identity, there's a way that it is an interplay between an internal experience but also the external um, culture, society, community, uh, and the ways that they determine what things are. And so 
bringing this to the concept of um, the, the trans debate and what is going on around that issue, um, he does seem to be supportive of trans rights, but he also is bringing up that to try to understand why some people might be so upset about these things. And the concept that I hadn't quite thought of in the way he brought it up was that when someone else is talking about their identity, so someone says, I identify as a man or a woman, or in the case of Rachel Dolezal, as a black woman, when someone states their identity, as much as we could say, well, it's just about them, but because our sense of self is tied into one another and because of what it means to be part of a group can impact what we see of ourselves or how we see ourselves, when someone says they are part of a group, they could be changing what it means for us to be us, for me to have my sense of self. So me as a man, if I then hear someone else say that they are a man, but I don't think they should be part of the group or the way that I see myself, by accepting them in that group, I would have to potentially change the way I see myself. And that's why I can feel so threatening or have such a deep impact. Now, this isn't to say that's the only reason people might be anti-trans or uh, act in a particular way. But for me, this was an interesting conception of understanding what might make it feel so personal. We also see this with things like gay marriage, when it was um, more controversial still, some people don't accept it, but here in the United States, for I think close to a decade now, it's been the law of the land that same-sex marriage is legal and essentially any two consenting adults can get married to one another. But many people would say, and I felt this way too, well, if other people want to get married or not, what does that have to do with you? Why would you care so much or why would you push against it or try to take away some right for, for some people? And people have religious reasons that they would state, but also this conception that it changes their own sense of what it means to be married or what they think it means or if anyone else can get married in ways that they don't think is right, it could affect their sense of self or their sense of their relationship. Similarly, except Rachel Dolezal as a black woman for many members of the black community didn't feel right. It changed what it meant to have their experience, what they go through, what they um, have to go through. Again, they can't choose to then be white or just switch that experience, which then brings us to the sense sometimes we'll talk about if someone is white passing or whatever that might be, male passing, female passing, or man passing, woman passing, is that we see that our identity is impacted by the people around us. If you are, let's say, trans and a trans man and you very much look like a man, you might have no trouble living your life saying you're a man. But if you are a trans man but still look like what society will tell you a woman looks like, it might be harder for you to have that experience of saying that you are a man because of how people will respond to that. And this doesn't mean it's right for it to be that way, but it's just an awareness and an understanding of how these things tend to function in society. Even something like race, we know that there isn't some clear uh, sense of DNA or even physical markers that we can say for sure this is where a black person um, is, and this is where a white person is on these types of dimensions. It isn't that way. We also know that race is what we call a social construct. And so when people hear that, they think, oh, does that mean that there isn't racism? No, not at all. 
even if something is a social construct, it could have very real consequences in our real world. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in that way. It exists in a social way. And even this idea of people thinking that race is not a social construct comes back to this essentialist type of view, that there's essential something essential to being black or white that's deeper than um, uh, you know anything else that we could point to, or it's not just social. And I've been struck by this uh, time and time again, that so many things that feel so innate, that feel so deep, that we think, okay, this can't be a social construct. It has to be real, because how could I feel it at my core? Oh, no, this is what a man is supposed to be like. This is what a woman is supposed to be like. It feels so deep that it can't just be a social construct or something that's affected by culture. It's something very innate. And that's how people talk about it. A man should be this way. A woman should be this way. Um, but these things of what it means to be a man and a woman have evolved and continue to evolve over time and can be different from culture to culture. Uh, he talks about on some uh, cultures, it could be okay for men to hold hands together and, and walk down the street. But in the United States, if you were to do that, it would be looked at as you're likely gay or something would be seen as not uh, heterosexual in how you are acting or not manly in how you're acting. But, and it would feel very real, like you would just look at it and go, that's not right. That looks wrong. I know exactly what I'm looking at. But we can see that it is affected by culture and what we've been exposed to. And those things can become so deeply embedded within us that it feels right or wrong in such a deep way that we think it can't be something cultural or societal. It must be something in nature, something essential. And so we do the same thing with things like race, that we think that there are these essentialist natures and we hear it been talked about before. Um, an important way to think of social constructs and how they can have an impact is to recognize that money is a social construct, meaning that when I have money in my pocket, or even now we can see with so much digital currency being used, many people don't even carry cash or haven't touched cash for a long time, or even things like cryptocurrency, we can see that money is not something that has to have the value that it has. It's a social construct that we all create together. Of course, there are financial institutions and governments that are very much involved in setting the value of money. But there's a way that a social construct and a social contract exists that we all agree, okay, if I you can pay someone I don't even know, giving them certain, let's say, currency, whether it's paper or some kind of transfer of funds, and they trust what that is and what that means, and I trust that they will be um, affected by me giving them that and they might give me some service or some product in exchange for that. And so money has huge impacts in the world, even literally life and death impacts in the world. But yet it is still a social construct. So we can see that just because something is created socially and co-created socially by individuals themselves, it doesn't mean it can't have a huge impact on the world and on individual experiences. And so similarly, when we say that race is a social construct, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have real impact and doesn't also have, unfortunately, life or death consequences for the experience of certain individuals. So uh, to me, the part that was a bit eye-opening and made me think of things in a different way was recognizing that when we look at identity and people want to see themselves in a certain way, um, as much as I do think people should have that space to be who they feel they are and who they want to be, I could see that someone might see that as threatening to their own sense of self. I hadn't considered it in that way. 
way that Brian Lowry uh, explained it in his book. And to me, that was very important to look at that. That identity, just like all the aspects of ourselves, is a, a co-creation. It's not something that we just experience in a vacuum. Uh, but I really did enjoy this book. Really, anyone who is interested in this idea of the sense of self, it's, it's quite fascinating to recognize that so much of what we think we can just take for granted for what it means to have a sense of self, that it comes so much from within ourselves, even looking at some of the history of that, how long have people talked about a sense of self, uh, was it always there, uh, is really interesting. And recognizing how much it is created by our relationships, that it doesn't just exist in a vacuum, he really hammers that point home throughout the book, this social creation of the self, that really would there be a self if you were completely by yourself, if there wasn't others around. But so much of what we know or we think we know about ourselves comes through our relationships. And as I mentioned earlier, and I'll, I'll say here to end the show, it can remind us of how we are impacting the selves of others. We are all in this interplay of being impacted and impacting each other's sense of selves. And that we can have a positive effect and influence on that. And also it can make us think, as he shares it, to be more kind to one another to try to leave a positive impact. And he says that when he... Um, studies these things or talks about this book, it reminds him of that, of how it's important to, to be good to one another and how he wants to be a better person and be more kind to others. So a really eye-opening book, really getting us to see what does it mean to even have a sense of self, how might it, it be created. It will definitely challenge many of the ways you probably think about your own sense of self and others, which I thought was very, very fascinating. So highly recommend this book, Selfless, The Social Creation of You by Brian Lowry. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Farhuda in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Lakwi, Zan Zendegi, 